Podcasting from behind her locked bathroom door, the only quiet place in the house, this is the Homeschool Sanity Show, a twice-monthly podcast with expert advice for happier, healthier homeschool living. And now, here's your host, Christian psychologist and homeschool mom of six, Dr. Melanie Wilson. Hello, and welcome to this episode of the Homeschool Sanity Show, when we are talking about how we can homeschool distractible kids and keep our sanity while doing it. My guest today is one of my favorite conference speakers. Her name is Carol Barnier, and she is sharing practical, funny, and faith-challenging truths wherever she speaks on how to teach ADHD kids, being a highly distracted mom, learning styles, and engaging prodigals. She is a frequent guest commentator on Focus on the Family's Weekend Magazine broadcast. She is also a homeschooler of 20 years, author of four books, mother to three children, and wife to one husband. Carol, welcome to the podcast, and I hope you will spend just a little time telling us a little bit more about you. I know that's a, more of a professional introduction, but I would love to know, for example, how old your children are now. Oh, well, thanks for having me. I'd be happy to tell you. Um, I have three children, and, and I, you know, you you, when you're talking to homeschoolers, you're used to hearing numbers like 6, 8, 10, and 12. So I always find myself going, I have only three. I'm just so sorry. I know that's disappointing, but it, it, it's what it is. Um, my oldest two, I have two that I've graduated. Uh, one is 25, one is 20, and I still have one at home who is 14. So we're still doing this. Aww. Aww, that's wonderful. <laughs> and and isn't it, um, don't you just kind of hold on to those those uh, younger kids and just enjoy every minute of it. I know I do. Uh, you do, you know, and you're less you're less stressed about parenting. You're less stressed about mm-hmm. homeschooling. It's like when you have your firstborn. I I was one of those helicopter moms, you know, like I barely let his feet <laughs> touch the ground. And by the third one, you're like, you know, here, take these knives, go play in traffic. I mean, just keep busy. So, so I've definitely yeah. learned to relax, and my homeschooling has reflected that too. I was you know pretty uptight in the beginning, and now I'm very relaxed. So. Mm-hmm. Well, you started homeschooling 20 years ago. What prompted you to homeschool at the beginning? You know, it was really specific. I, I wish I could tell you that it was really thought over and prayed over. Like so many folks, they just really put a lot of forethought into it. We did not. We we put our our, our firstborn child into a, a private um, kindergarten program, and he flunked. I mean, I, I don't know if that's possible. <laughs> he, he flunked kindergarten. It was terrible. And he, he had a real struggle, and the teacher said, you know, you might want to get him checked. I don't know. And of all the kids who graduated from the class, only two couldn't read, and he was one. And so we kind of panicked, and, and that was when we realized something was different. I mean, we just we didn't know what to compare him to, so he seemed fine to us. But when we saw him, you know, next to 20 other kids, and we realized how differently they all behaved, we started realizing maybe something was different. So... We took him to all of the, the public school classrooms he might go into for first grade. There were four possible classrooms. We visited each and every one. We met each and every teacher. And every single teacher to a person said, that child is going to have to be medicated to be successful in my classroom. Mm-hmm. And, you know, when I looked at him, I, I understood why they said it. I, I really got it because he was not only um, having a hard time focusing himself but he was clearly disrupting everyone else so i understood why the teacher said that but because he had other medical issues we simply couldn't consider medication it was just off the table for us so we started homeschooling out of sheer desperation 
you know, we get this, we got a diagnosis of ADHD. And so we said, okay, well, we'll just, we'll homeschool until we can figure out something better to do. And we just never turned back. It was just clearly the right place for him to be. And, and here we are 20 years later, still doing it. Mm. Now, did you know that he had characteristics of ADD before he went to kindergarten? Well, you know, we didn't, and I don't know why. And by the way, there's ADD. They're, they're the kind of dreamy, right. distractible ones. And then there's ADHD, and those are the ones whose socks never match and they're up on top of the refrigerator. That was my son. <laughs> right. He had so much energy. And so you would think we would have noticed a difference. I mean, we certainly noticed at Sunday school he was busier than most kids. And you would also think, given the fact that his father was diagnosed with, at the time, what was called hyperactivity. That's all they just called it. And so we, we should have noticed, but, but we didn't, and, you know, until it was smack dab in our face and we realized we had to do something. Okay, so you, you had that. Uh, did you do a lot of research and, and figure out how to manage his distractibility? at first, or did you make some mistakes before you learned better? Well, you know, I read everything I could find. I mean, I just, I, I don't know that there was a book that I didn't grab hold of and, and go through. Um, the problem was that all the books that I was finding were things on how to recognize ADHD, how to medicate it, how to manage it, how to discipline it, how to, to love it in spite of what they said was a clear disability, which which is a view I've since come to challenge. But, um but there was nothing on how to teach it, and that's what my primary need was at that moment. You know, here we were just thrust into a school situation at home, and I was in a panic that this child couldn't read. Now, I have since learned that a five-year-old boy who cannot read is not a panic, but I didn't know it at the time. So I was just all uptight about we've got to learn to read, we've got to learn to read, that's, you know, that, that's got to be our focus. And so um, I would say I absolutely made huge mistakes for about six months, and, and it was just, it was awful. And it was about that time um, that I finally said, you know what, this, this model that I'm using, which was the public school model, which is what most homeschooling moms mm -hmm. do. You know, we go home and we set up the public school model. And it was just disastrous for us. And somehow it hadn't occurred to me that the very reason I had pulled him out of a traditional classroom setting was because it hadn't worked. And yet, what did I do? I went home and I recreated that very same model. So, so fast forward now, six months into our schooling, and, it, and we're both so miserable. And I finally said, okay, that's it. I'm not doing this. I am, I, I just, we're going to stop this, and we're going to just start learning in whatever way we can. We're just going to enjoy the learning process, and whatever works, works is fine. And, and I thought at the time, you know, he's going he's gonna to graduate from my school um, with a deficient set of like life and academic skills. I mean, this is, it was a sad moment. In retrospect, I kind of gave up, but that's when all the wonderful things began to happen. That's when I started just experimenting and trying different things, and I'd find that something would work, and the next thing I knew I found something else that would work. And it, it, nothing looked like a traditional classroom, but I didn't care because now he was learning. That is wonderful. So we want to know, in your experimentation and trying things out, what was working for your son? Well, the first thing I learned was that this child cannot learn unless he's in motion. And that was so counterintuitive because everything else I had heard in my own childhood even, everything that everyone said was, you need to sit at your desk. You need to have your feet flat on the floor. You need to have your hands still and look the teacher in the eye. Then you're going to work through all of these workbooks and you've got to be really quiet. And, and my child would implode. I mean, he just couldn't <laughs> handle that at all. And I was really fortunate to hear a story of a, 
of a kindergarten teacher in the public school system, actually. And she was working with her children at circle time, and she had a kid like mine. And so here he is, you know, she's like, come on down to circle time. And he would sit at circle time, and then he would spin circles around in circle time. You know, he just couldn't sit still. And this teacher was just horrified. I mean, no one was getting anything out of circle time, and it was supposed to be such a learning moment. So she finally gave up. I mean, she, she did sort of what I did. She gave up. She, in her case, she handed this kid a dust cloth and said, I'm going to put you in charge of, of cleaning up my room. So he's dusting around the room. She goes and deals with the kids at circle time. And for the first time that year, it worked, and the kids got everything because, you know, little whirlwind boy was off dusting. And so she gets through and has all the, the objectives met in her circle time. Now she's back at her desk, and here he comes with his little dust cloth, and she's feeling really awful that she just mm-hmm. kind of cut this kid loose. But that's when she learned he heard everything that she'd said. Not only had he heard it, he understood it. He could repeat it back almost verbatim. I mean, if, if these kids are moving, they are processing information, and it's almost like they have a tape recorder on. They hear everything that you say. And so that's when it clicked with her. He's got to be in motion to be learning. And that's, that's when I said, well, let's start trying that. And lo and behold, as long as I gave him something to do physically that was, here's, here's the key, the motion had to be mindless and repetitive. That's the key. Mm-hmm. Because if I don't give him something to do, you know what? He's going to move anyway. But he'll do something really annoying, like like throw pencils at his siblings or something like that. So I would choose the motion, and then lo and behold, he could learn. He could focus. He could attend. And he, he would absolutely thrive in that environment. Mm. That's wonderful. And then, then when it comes to the actual practical schoolwork, what do you do for a child? What worked with your son? So you've got them occupied when you're teaching. But then when it comes to actually sitting down to do math, what do you do? Well, you know, I had a, a, a rule in my head that I did my very best to get the pencil out of his hand for almost every subject except for writing. So in the mm-hmm. early years, if I could come up with alternatives to cover his math, I would. We would do oral responses. We would play manipulatives. We would play with dominoes. We would get up and I would have him do skip counting while jumping on a jogger. We would go to the park and uh, I would have him go to the top of the slide and I would do you know, five flashcards and as soon as he got fl- five of them right, he could come down the slide. I mean, it was that kind of stuff where we were still doing all of the same subjects, but we were, we were processing through them in, in different ways that didn't involve sitting still with a pencil in his hand. Now, of course, eventually he did have to learn, you know, writing, but, but it tends to be the case that a lot of these kids have delayed fine motor skills. So writing tends to come later for a whole bunch of these kids anyway. And you obviously don't want learning to just stop simply because their writing isn't ready yet. And there's this kind of uh, standard wisdom that I remember hearing. I mean, there were folks who would say, if writing is their weakest skill, then you need to incorporate writing into absolutely everything, and then they'll get better at their weakest skill. And, and I think there's some truth in that. I understand the value of that. But here's the problem. They are now going to proceed in every single subject at the speed of their weakest skill. So it does not take long before they are frustrated by every single subject, and then you know what comes next? They think they're dumb. They think they're dumb at every single subject. And so once I took the pencil out of my son's hand, I came up with alternative ways to teach it and test it. 
lo and behold, he was really good at math and science. And we didn't know that because before we always tied math and science to writing. And while he struggled with writing and language, he needed to know he was good at something. So the fact that he was really strong in math and science just was such a a boost for his self-esteem and his academic attitude. And and so he he was just really kind of set free by that process. Mm. I mean, I just loved what you had to say there about that. You know, it's it's so important that we do allow our children to experience their strengths. And if we're always couching it, as you're saying, in their weakness, then they really can't experience that joy. And then they may even grow to dislike those subjects that they're really quite good at. Yeah, um, and if we tie their weakness yeah. to all their subjects, what's worse is mm-hmm. they they kind of make that their identity and mm-hmm. and they just end up thinking they're bad at everything and that's just such a shame. Mhm. It sure is. Uh, one of our listeners had a question for you. She wanted to know how to keep um her child going on his schoolwork because it takes forever for him to do his lessons. So he's just stretching out the time. I think I know what you're going to say, but I would love to hear your response for her. Well, for us, the the one that hit me was math because it should have taken 15 to 20 minutes to do a lesson and he could still be sitting there three hours later and just struggling over the process. And and he would open up his math um, workbook and he would see like 45 problems. And I knew that not a single one of those problems was something he couldn't do. They were all within his, his, his uh, skill ability, but he would just be overwhelmed at the sight of so many problems. So there were several things that we did. One of the things, I just took the book away, and I wouldn't even let him look at those pages. And then while I'm sitting, you know, he'd, he'd be sitting down at the kitchen table, and I'd be working around the kitchen, but I had just a, a pile of scrap paper, small pieces of scrap paper, and I would write uh, one problem at a time on a piece of scrap paper, and I would just give him that problem. So that's all he had to focus on was just one problem at a time. And if he got it right, then he would wad it up and got to throw it through this little basketball hoop that I had in my kitchen. Um, I, I had you know, just ways to try and, and keep him away from that book. I might have him working on the whiteboard. Same thing. Um, a, a little, I don't know what it is about whiteboards, but something <laughs> about writing on whiteboards is far more fun and engaging with these kids than writing on paper. And I'm not sure why. Maybe it's because there's a little more gross motor involved in holding and writing with a dry erase, big dry erase marker than with a pencil. But over and over again, I, and I've heard this from so many moms at, in our organization as well, that just standing up at the whiteboard, and, th- and there's another thing, they're standing so they get to move, um, and working through those problems there for a lot of kids is just so, so much easier. So those are the, again, those are the kind of things that we would do. Another thing I would do is I might take um, three-by-five cards and just put the answers to the math problems on three-by-five cards and just spread them out all over the floor. So then he would sit down and do one math problem, and if he got it right, he'd have to get up and go run and grab the um, three-by-five card. It's the simplest little things. All it takes is just a little bit of motion, and they stay engaged. You, you would think that it might distract them, but it actually works quite the opposite. It gives them some kind of physical motion that allows them to process them. What I really hear you saying, Carol, is that you're really accepting your child where he's at. And you're saying, given that this is how my child is made, how God has made my child, how can I teach 
him in a way that fits with how he's made. And I, I just love that. I mean, I think er, anybody, any parent who has a child who is, who is not even attention deficit disordered or hyperactive, you know, the ADHD um, side of ADD um, can benefit from that because as homeschoolers, what's so wonderful is that we do have that, that freedom to tailor our teaching to each of our children. So I love that. Well, I know that you offer some other kinds of ideas and helps in your book, How to Get Your Kid Off the Refrigerator and On to Learning. What kinds of other resources can you recommend for parents who have kids who have ADHD or some variation? Well, you, you heard me talking about how uh, I like to put motion in everything, and that, that was a game changer once I figured that out. I think the second most valuable thing was taking the pencil out of the hand. The third one, this really surprised me, um, was the power of, of rhythmical language and, and repetition of those rhythms. And I never, ever believed this for years that this is even a possibility. And, and the reason is because my son has no rhythm. And, and I say that with, with the greatest of maternal love, but this is one of the least musical children on the planet. And this was very painful to me because I used to be a music major, so I just assumed all my kids were going to have the gene and we'd be you know, making our own stringed instruments and touring the world like some other famous homeschooling families. And so I was just heartbroken that this child had no rhythm. So it never occurred to me to incorporate rhythm into his learning. And then one day I, I watched him. I walked in and he was practicing his spelling words by spelling them over and over again until some kind of natural rhythm developed. And, you know, like all of us did. When we, for example, when you learn to spell Mississippi, you know, everybody has some kind of little mm -hmm. rhythm that they used. And I thought, well, that makes no sense. This kid has no rhythm. How can this be? So I had to kind of question myself and rethink, you know, did I have some kind of preconceived notion about how he should learn, and I needed to set it aside and find out how he actually did learn. And so I said, well, all right, let's test this. So this for the very first, I call them ditties. That's what I end up, up calling these things. But I tested this very first one was um, on fractions. That's what he was working on at the time. And he was really struggling with remembering that he had to make the denominators the same before he could add or subtract. So I said, all right, let me, let me write some kind of rhythmical thing that will help you to remember that. So I'm going to repeat one for you here so you can hear what our little ditty sounded like. Now this, this one, when you hear me talking about how your shoes have to match, that means that the denominators have to be the same. But here's the first ditty I ever wrote. When adding or subtracting fractions, you can't lose. Just be sure before you start, you've got matching shoes. Now once your shoes do match, keep your shoes the same and work straight across the top. That's the name of the game. And then we had one for multiplying and dividing and so on and so forth. But anyway, it was super, super simple, and he never struggled with fractions ever again. And mm. I thought, oh, my gosh, what, what have I been missing here? So I began turning out fractions like a crazy woman. I mean, it's like, it's, I, it was. I was possessed. And it was like anything that they might be struggling with, we would, we would just try putting it to ditties. And through the process of, of ditties, we would just repeat a couple of them every morning. No big deal if they didn't get them right because we're going to repeat them again tomorrow. We would repeat a ditty for, you know, one, two, three weeks until they just had it. But through that process, they got, um, oh, they learned the, the presidents in order and the classification system and the planets and um, the books of the Bible and tons of dates of history we, we learned through ditties and the elements in the periodic table of the elements. I mean, I mean, you get it. Just anything that was worth memorizing that they might one day use, we just started putting the ditties, and lo and behold, they memorized tons and tons of stuff. 
And so that was really, really useful, too, with an atypical learner. And I wanted to go back to something you said earlier. You said, I accept these kids where they're at. There was a time when I didn't. And, and I, it, while it sounds so noble, I wish I could say, yes, I always accepted him where he was at. The truth was, <laughs> for the first six months, I kept trying to make this child look and walk and talk like a traditional learner. And, and you know, it's, I mean, all of us homeschooling moms, almost virtually all of us do that. We, we just kind of emulate that public school model. But when I threw out what I thought I knew about learning and I just experimented to see what worked with his, this child, that's when I began accepting where he was at. And in the end, the answer is, yeah, why wouldn't I? Why, why didn't I do that sooner? Because the, the objective here is to learn. It's not, it's not the objective that we can recreate a school environment that looks like somebody else's school environment. Who cares? The goal is mastery of a subject. However you get there, that's the goal. And it's funny, I was talking with this, this guy who's a, a part of the public school system, and he was talking about how when he's helping his kids with math at night, and he had learned when you learn math, you look up in the sky, and then you see the flashcard in your mind there, 5 plus 3 equals 8. So he kept trying to teach all of his kids, if you're really learning math, you'll look up in the sky and you'll see the math. And it worked for some of his kids, and it didn't work for one of them. And I said, that's because that kid's not a visual. You know, you may have a kid here who learns by hearing or by doing, but if they don't see it, you can, you can look in the sky, you can look in the carpet, you can look in the laundry. He's not going to see 3 plus 5 equals 8. And it's funny, in the back behind him was his wife nodding, yep, that's right, that's one that we've got. <laughs> so this was a guy who couldn't accept that maybe his kid was going to learn differently from him. And here they were years later, this poor kid was still struggling. So, yes, let your child lead in terms of how they learn because it is what it is. Mm-hmm. Very good. And, you know, the other thing that was occurring to me as you were sharing is how all of this can be so wrapped up into personality too because I have a distractible child who is very much of a sanguine. He wants to have fun. Mm -hmm. And if it's not fun, he doesn't learn very well. And that's one of the things I really appreciated about your presentations and your books is that you're very much an advocate of turning learning into games because that just works so well for my children in particular. We're, we're not alone in that either. That's in Proverbs. Yeah. Because a wise teacher makes learning fun. So we, we've got it on good authority. Well, that's good. I think I still have a, a fishing game that I made because of your um, direction and, and instruction oh, yeah. on that. You know, that's so fun for your yeah. younger kids when you just make, put facts onto fish and put paper clips at the end of them and use a magnet attached by a string to a a dowel rod, and you're just fishing away for facts. It's, it's fun. And, and isn't it silly that, that they're pulling up off of the floor the very same problems that are in their workbooks, but right. for some reason it is so much more fun to go fishing and pull it off the floor, and the next thing you know they want to finish that problem because there's another fish they can go get, and, and then they just, they just rip right through their work in a way that, you know, if it was in that math book or, or on the table with a pencil in their hand, it might just take, you know, hours and hours. Uh-huh. Yes. Well, there's a complicating factor when it comes to homeschooling distractible kids, and that is if you happen to be a distractible mother. You have said that that's true of you, 
Did you find that that made it easier or more challenging when you were homeschooling your children? Well, I think it definitely has a challenging component to it, and I would be crazy to ignore that. I think in the beginning it was mostly challenging because, you know, I'm as distractible as my child, and my kids learned. They did not take them long to figure out. If you ask mom kind of an interesting off-task question, <laughs> she's off track, school's over, we're having a great time. You know, so they, they knew how to kind of play the system with me. Um, so I did eventually have to try and pull strategies and organizational methods and things that would kind of help keep me on track. However, here's the flip side of that coin. I came to the conclusion that one of the benefits of being that kind of mom is that my mind would go off on what I call delight-driven education. So, so they might ask a question, and I'm like, oh, that is a great question. Let's go after that. And there we were going off on, on you know, I, I've learned to call it rabbit trail education. I mean, I think that's kind of, that really kind of um, defines it well. And I used to worry about it because it would take me way off my lesson plans, and we could spend two weeks learning about something that I had never intended we learn. And, and, but here was the thing. First of all, it was really cool chasing down something based on their question because they were already engaged in the topic. They were more interested in learning about it because they brought it up. And two, it made learning like this adventure. I mean, it's almost like we were kind of Indiana Jones going after something. Let's, <laughs> let's find out. You know, that's like really cool. And then here was the third discovery I made. Now, this, would, this one took me years to finally uh, understand but I kept thinking, oh, this is bad. I've got all these little rabbit trails, and, and they just lead to nowhere, and the poor kids are going to have such a disjointed education. That was my fear. But I made the amazing discovery that in the end, all these rabbit trails touch each other. They eventually connect. Because every time my kids asked me a question, it was based on something else we'd been talking about. It was already connected in one way. And then it might lead to something else that was connected to something else. But sooner or later, everything in the world is connected and it started creating this network, and that network was just full of things that my kids had delightedly learned about. So in the end, I think it was more of a plus than a minus. Once I gave into it and realized it was okay, I think it was more of a plus than a minus because it made my kids realize that learning was this active activity rather than a passive activity. They didn't just sit there and wait for me to spoon-feed information into them. We were out getting it. We were out collecting those bugs and, and mounting them and raising worms and going off and just doing things because it sounded interesting. And um, I, if, I, if anything, I just wish I'd done it sooner because I wasted too many years thinking I had to be a Martha in, you know, in a Mary's body. I mean, I had to be uber organized in ways that, that I wasn't meant to be. So if you've got moms listening to this and they really are kind of those organized Marthas, that's okay. But their system works for them. That's fine. But if you've got those Marys who, who really would kind of like to follow the delight of the moment and they'd be happier doing that, they need to know that's okay too, that there's a, a real blessing that they bring to the table by being that kind of an educator as well. That is encouraging for me even after homeschooling for 14 years because I, I find that even now when I do go off on those rabbit trails and my kids are, are really good at, at taking me there, there's part of me that feels like I'm just not I'm not as good of a homeschooling mom as the one who says, "Oh yeah, we've already finished our books. We've already done all the lessons in our in our history book or in our 
in a writing book. And, um, you know, how would you speak to that? You know, if, you're, if I'm telling you, which I am, uh, you know, I feel guilty about that sometimes, and I'm worried that I'm not going to, um, you know, give my kids as good of a foundation in some of these basic subjects if I'm always chasing the rabbit trails. What would you say? Oh, I had like four answers. Let's hope I can remember them all. First of all, <laughs> okay. you don't even know what kind of books that mom has. It could be she bought really ridiculous books that were easy to go through. That's the first thing I would say. The, the second thing is that um, I've heard of those moms who sometimes uh, have had their kids do two lessons a day, and they, they graduate high school at 12, and then they graduate college at 15. And, you know, and I'm serious. There's a ton of people who do that. And, and God bless them. I'm, I'm glad, glad that that works for them. I don't want that for my children. I don't want um, – there are so many enriching experiences that have been part of our homeschooling that I would have to give up to be on that double math, double science, double language track. I, I don't want that for my child. Um, and the other thing I would tell you is every single family and even every single child has a different plan for it. And so you do not – want to be in the business of comparing your child to others because not only um, is that the wrong thing for your child, but you're going to be in the business of trying to make your child look and walk and talk like somebody else, and that may not be what God has in mind for them. You know, you've got this really cool kid with this cool set of qualities that is, is he's just designed to be something, but chances are that something he's designed to be is different from those other moms that you're looking at with their other children. I have one child who is this calm, compliant, obedient, disciplined child. And I love her to death, and she was, she was really easy to deal with schooling. But here's the truth. There are some things her rambunctious, difficult, challenging brother can do that she cannot. And that's by God's design. And so I'm, I'm glad I didn't waste his time trying to make him into the kind of student that she was because there are just different things at work here, and you've got to respect that. Hmm. Well said. I read your book, If I'm Diapering a Watermelon, Then Where'd I Leave the Baby, years ago when I did have babies. And I'm so thankful, honestly, that I'm out of the baby stage now because I was always afraid that I was going to leave my baby somewhere. <laughs> so, so now they're old enough to say, hey. <laughs> like, like one of our children did the other day, hey, you left me at home and you're yeah. on your way to church. Come back and get me. Can you come and get me? So, oh, that is a hoot. Yes. That is funny. Oh, that's great. But one of the, I know one of the suggestions you had in your book was, you know how the scissors always disappear? Yeah. Um, you know, it just drives you crazy. It drove my mother crazy. And you said, you know, tie those things down. You yeah. know, just like they do at, you know, the bank or, or wherever, at the checkout at the grocery store, there's the pen right there that's yep. tied down. And so I took that advice, but as, as is typical for me, I took it to an extreme, and I was tying down everything. And oh, is all there an I had extreme? Do, I don't know. I didn't get that memo. There is. <laughs> okay, what were you tying down? <laughs> well, well, all I did was come up to you at, at uh, a conference that you were speaking at, and I started to tell you that I had taken this to an extreme, and you said, oh, it was like spaghetti. <laughs> It's like you immediately pictured exactly what it was. And I said, yes, that's exactly what it turned into. So I had to stop with all the tying it down. But I do recommend that book, if for nothing else. I mean, it's chock full of great practical ideas, but it's also just such a relief to hear that we're normal 
we're different, but we're still very normal and wonderful too. You know, it's funny when I when when I came up with the title for the book, I didn't. I just kind of did it as a joke. I thought it was kind of funny. But at one conference that I was at, this this woman was coming along, walking up to the table, and she looked at my book, and suddenly she went, "Oh my goodness, wait a minute!" And she ran off. And I thought that is so odd. And then she came back. She was dragging her friend there, and she took her friend and stood her in front of my book and said, "Look!" And the friend looked at the book and burst into tears. And I'm like, "What? What is going on here?" And it turned out that the friend had just been in a, another booth, set her baby down, picked up her books, and walked off, and they had to page her to come back and get her baby. And so I turned to, to this poor <laughs> crying woman's friend and said, you're a horrible friend. Why would you bring her here? But, you know, we, we realized, and it actually in the end was a blessing for her to realize it was such a common experience, it even had a book, you know, that, right. that any one of us could have done something like that, especially when you're tired from having that newborn in the first place. And right. So she was relieved to know that she wasn't alone. No, she definitely isn't alone. That's a great story. Well, we started off talking about how we can homeschool distractible kids. Do you have a final encouragement that you would like to leave with us moms? Well, you know, I, I, there's two things. Um, it, it, one is, if you are that distractible mom, what I think, uh, you know, when people go to a homeschool conference and they, they listen to those moms who are not distractible, I mean, they are, their hair is done and their clothes are, are, are ironed and their children are all dressed alike, and they're, and they're truly that lovely. I'm not, I'm not denigrating them at all. I really believe that's how they live. But sometimes you listen to those women speak and you think, wow, I, maybe I'm not supposed to do this. I'm never going to be like that. I think that one of the benefits of coming to hear me speak is there's this little party favor I give away. And that is when you hear me speak, you go, wow, if that woman can do this, I know I can handle this. <laughs> so that's the first thing. Please be encouraged because there's nothing you do that I have not already done in spades. But the second thing I would say is when you're dealing with this distractible kid is they are building a tool chest of strategies and solutions and, and, and tools that they're going to use for the rest of their life to, to work with and, and compensate for the challenges, these, these challenges that are very, very real now. But along with all of those challenges, there's a flip side to absolutely every quality they have, and that flip side is something that can be used for good, for something wonderful. So enjoy the ride. The challenges get lesser the benefits get greater, and you get to see this really cool adult that is always interesting. And you get to sit back and go, wow, I, I got to be the mom of that guy or that woman, mm-hmm. and that's pretty cool. So hang in there. It all, it all turns out well. Oh, very, very encouraging indeed. Well, Carol, where can we find you online? I've mentioned some of your books, and I will be listing the titles and the links to those in the show notes for this um, podcast, you can find that, that list of links on ultimateradioshow.com, uh, and then you can uh, click on the Homeschool Sanity Show button and look for Help for Homeschooling Distractible Kids with Carol Barnier, and then you will find those links. But where can we find you directly? Well, I'll tell you where I'd like to send your listeners, and that is I created an online community for families who have, and typically homeschool, a highly distractible child. And it's called Sizzle Bop. 
And there's kind of a, a long, funny story. I won't tell you that now because we'll run out of time. But there's fu- a funny story behind it. So if you go, go to sizzlebop.com, you'll find out why we call it that. But sizzlebop.com, we just decided that, you know, when you go to a support group and there's maybe one other family who has a kid like yours and they don't, they don't understand your kid and they don't understand why he's struggling with this when their kids don't and so on. And I realized there were a bunch of us, but we were all separated by geography. So I created this online community. And we've got almost 5,000, um, you know, families now in, in sizzlebop.com. And we just we share teaching tips and, and you never know what I'm going to talk about. Whatever, wherever my mind goes, whatever rabbit trail is, I may share on that. Um, I think two of the best things we ever did on Sizzlebop was we did a survey about the curriculum that each of these, these families use for that distractible child. So subject by subject, we said, well, what, what are your favorite science curriculums and your favorite math and favorite language and so on? And we put the results of that survey um, on our blog, and it's, it's free. Anybody can, can go take a look at it. The second thing we did that was one of the most popular things we did was we had a contest called I Can't Believe I Said That, and people sent in some of the funny things that have come out of their mouths in dealing with this unique child. And it's stuff like don't, don't lick the car and you know, don't, don't salt the chandelier. Who, who has to say these things? Why do your shoes smell like gasoline? I, I'm just convinced that other parents never have to say stuff like that. And, and my favorite one was um, spit your brother's tooth back out and give it to him right now. I I think that is hysterical. But anyway, so if you think that you would connect well with that community, then please come visit us at sizzlebop, that's B-O-P dot com, and and join us and uh, find find fellow soulmates who understand you and your kids. Well, it sounds like a lot of fun over there. I think I'm going to have to get involved. Carol, come visit thank us. you so much. I will. Thank you so much for taking time out of your busy schedule to share with us. I know that parents of distractible kids and distractible parents themselves who are listening are thanking you. So I look forward to talking with you again sometime because I know you have so many areas of homeschool expertise that we could benefit from. Thank you so much. Thanks so much for having me. This is a good time. If you would like to share this show with a homeschooling parent who has a distractible child, I know they would appreciate it. And I would appreciate it if you would take the time to review this podcast on iTunes. It's how other homeschooling families can find out about this resource. Thank you for joining us for the Homeschool Sanity Show with Dr. Melanie Wilson. Visit Melanie at psychowith6.com. That's the number six for more sanity-saving ideas. The Homeschool Sanity Show is a production of the Ultimate Homeschool Radio Network.